0: What's up everybody, this is Tanner from TamanBaseballFan.com. Today I'm going to be uh, answering a question that I have been getting quite a bit recently uh, and I'm going base it off of an email that I received uh, a day or two ago uh, because I, I think it's actually pretty important for a lot of people out there that are listening and I think for those of you that are not in this position, you might be able to glean some sort of information that might be helpful or useful to you down the road. Um, so this this first email, and this is this is this email that guys actually encompasses quite nicely a lot of the questions I've been getting over the past uh, couple of weeks. So we will uh, just go ahead and read this out loud and then I will respond. Uh, this is from somebody named Dan. He said, "Dear Tanner, I know you're busy and that you get a lot of emails and messages, so this will only take 90 seconds to read. For those of you out there that have like a t- uh, stopwatch, go ahead and start it now. Here, let's see if he's right. <laughs> I listened to your podcast with Mike Summer and was intrigued when I found out uh, you were a teacher and creating great content. Um, so, first of all, I'm not really sure what he means about teacher. I'm, you know, not a teacher full time or anything like that. But uh, you know, maybe because I teach baseball stuff to people or baseball card. Uh, information to people. I'm not really sure. But anyways, uh, I am a dad of three who collected from 1986 to 1994. I stopped because of the strike. My kids are interested in soccer and baseball collecting. I want to enjoy this time with them without breaking the bank, as well as teaching them a few lessons about economics, logic, and decision-making along the way. If you were to re-enter the hobby today, and yes, I know I'm a bit late to the party, on December 5th, so I guess he wrote this on the 5th, with the hopes of making it self-sustaining, what would be your first few steps that, uh, as you retake up the hobby? You have some factory sets that you built and a range of singles as assets to begin this journey with your kids in the basement. A few items that bring back great memories you will hold on to, but all others are fair game to be sold or traded. Uh, I totally understand if you're too busy to respond, but even a one or two line reply will really make my day. All the best, Dan. So, uh, Dan, this is going to be my answer to you. <laughs> Instead of uh, just uh, writing a one or two line uh, response to you, I, uh, I really think it would be beneficial to the hobby community to hear this answer. Um, so, first of all, you mentioned, I'm going to tell you kind of a little bit about my story Of what happened. So, first of all, when I came back to the hobby, what really piqued my interest were two things. Number one, uh, the affordability of cards I loved so much as a child in the late 80s and early 90s. And it's not as uh, that's not completely going to be something that people run into as much nowadays, but they're still affordable. But compared to when I first got back in as an adult, um, you know, when I was. 25 26 years old it was a it was a it was a big difference it was much cheaper like i found that many of the cards that i loved as a child uh any donnerous 89 tops 90 upper deck these sets were oftentimes being sold for less than the price of shipping the complete sets uh in fact i was enamored by wax boxes at this time period just like every kid was back in the late 80s and early 90s but uh Coming up with fifteen dollars for a box, a whole box was hard to come by for me um, and for my parents. Uh, so coming back to the hobby, realizing that a lot of these boxes at the time, and yeah you know, the mid two thousands, were you know dirt cheap, less than ten dollars each. Like they actually depreciated because of the glut of stuff that's out there. So uh, I started out on a mission in the mid two thousands to pick up a complete set of every card, major card company that, uh, that was made from my birth year 1980 to when I stopped, which is around 1993-ish. I think I was considering maybe stopping at 92 because the, the big bad 93 SP set was out there and the 93 finest and I was a little worried about, uh, you know, plunking down big money for those back then. Um, so that was the first thing that kind of really drew me back in. Uh, the second thing was the amazing technology that was being used in newer cards they were starting to put in these pieces of jersey uh, jerseys and patches from jerseys that were actually used in major league baseball games that rocked my world right there it was incredible like i thought this was like space age technology pure genius and on top of that they also had Uh, autographs that they started putting in packs. Um, And there were many things that were, uh, that were noticeably uh, significant to me when comparing pack-pulled autographs to their in-person or through the mail sign counterparts. Number one, every card would have an authentication, like a COA, basically printed right into the card. Uh, Number two, uh, the card would typically be designed to hold an autograph, so it made it that more much more attractive and, and visually appealing. Number three, um, you know, the fact that they would use uh, a, they would standardize like a certain type of uh, pen to use, so it wouldn't be like some super thick black marker that was uh, you know written all over on uh, you know, eighty-seven tops card or whatever you know. So. Uh, all of these things together just really kind of knocked my socks off. It was a perfect storm. Um, eventually, what I noticed was I got kind of obsessive and addictive in buying these game use cards, especially. I was buying all kinds of them. I mean, just it didn't matter what type of player it was, as long as it had that little one inch by one inch uh, you know square piece of real estate with that fabric. I wanted it because I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So anyways, eventually I looked at what I had and I go, wow, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these game used cards. And I don't really care too terribly much about any specific player in here. And every now and then I would come up against uh, like a Jason Giambi or Gary Sheffield or something. And, you know, nowadays it's no big deal. Shoot, I've got a Reggie Jackson bat card that I found Um uh In a collection I picked up on a garage sale this last weekend, and it was like five or ten dollar card I mean you know it, and to to think about uh the significance of that type of card, you think to a non collector man, it's gotta be at least hundred dollars or something, you know, but that wasn't the case so in any event um the uh the superstar power in my glut of gaming's cards were few and far between, uh a lot of them were you know, maybe Khalil Green, uh, all, all kinds of players that weren't really, like Jose Vitor, like guys that weren't like massive stars. and But it didn't matter to me when I was buying because I just wanted to buy all, all kinds of them. So um, eventually what I re- decided to do is exit the hobby. Because on top of all those hundreds of game used cards, I also had like a metric ton of uh, these complete sets that were in my closet and I was like, what do I do with these? (laughs) They're just sitting there and I was thinking for quite a while, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to wait until I retire and I'm going to, you know, enjoy the good life by sleeving all these bad boys, putting them all in pages. And I I had these pictures in my mind of, of myself enjoying a complete set of 1989 tops and pages and flipping them, uh, flipping the pages one by one, enjoying the Kirk Gibson, the Carney Lansford, the Fernando Valenzuela, and reliving just uh, the most enjoyable parts of my childhood uh, through this hobby. And I started realizing, you know what? That's never gonna happen. And on top of that, I can get these anytime. So I decided to sell. And one by one, uh, I ended up selling the sets they gave these cards and uh, I said, you know, this I'll just chalk this up as kind of like a big mistake. I just got obsessed and if I take a loss, I take a loss. And that's that. So we'll just, you know, cut our losses and move on. But what I decided to do is, uh, is something much more different instead of chalking up as a loss. Instead, what I did is I decided to set up a spreadsheet because I'm a numbers guy and uh, make a list of my inventory and treat it as a business. And so I would compare the cost of what I w- what I spent on these cards to what I was selling them for. And eventually, something pretty incredible happened. Um, <laughs> I started realizing that the more work that I put into it, the more money I would start making. The game use cards, uh, after I started selling a few hundred of them, I would average out like how much I would have in each card. So I started out with like averaging about a buck 25 per card. Then I that number went down. So, okay, well I've got 500 left and I'm averaging about 65 cents per card. That's pretty good because I know in bulk I can sell these for a dollar each. So I started thinking, huh, I'm making some money on this. And then eventually uh, I became positive And I go, wow, this is incredible. I made back all my money, but I've got 300 cards. They're basically free. Now there's something psychological that happened to me right there <laughs> because here i am sitting in my office with 300 game use cards that i was on fire red hot in love with uh just a mere month or so before this that are basically free and yes you could argue that they weren't free because i spent a lot of time and effort uh posting pictures and uh, having to deal with people to sell them and ship them and that sort of thing but It was all kind of fun to me because I wasn't engaged in this activity of making money with things I didn't care about. I was able to have, you know, like be knee deep or neck deep really, in baseball cards. And so that made it all the more enjoyable. So, uh, you know, that might be one uh, one teachable point there. If you're uh, doing this for yourself or for your kids, anybody out there listening is, you know, keep a spreadsheet and start, uh, treating this as like, maybe like as a business, but also maybe even more applicably as a game. And so that's what I have called this. I've considered this, uh, a game. I've mentioned this in my book, Confessions of a Baseball Card Addict, uh, that I call this like the game of cardboard alchemy, uh, where, you know, you, you basically buy some cards at a certain amount of money and, you figure out how you can make money with them. And at the end of the day, you're gonna have some cards that you love, uh, for free basically, that didn't cost you anything out of pocket. And hopefully in your pocket, you'll have a little bit of extra spending money, which is great. That uh, this hobby is fabulous for that sort of thing. And uh, these activities are just tailor made for this hobby. So that's what I would recommend doing. Um, so before doing any of this though, We'll take a step back and the first first thing that I would recommend is take a look at everything that you have and put them on what I like to call the diamond cutting table. Uh, Put them all out and really, really think hard at what you want to keep and what you want to sell. Uh, As a tip, the things that you want to sell should probably uh, cross this intersection, the intersection of rarity, uh, beauty, and story so if you love for instance a set of 1989 tops you're just a huge fan of the set Uh, but there's no particular story behind this this uh, set that you have Uh, you know that might be something that you might consider wanting to sell right now because you can always get those back later and it might go up in value a little later down the road, but they're not gonna skyrocket anytime soon. Uh, knock on wood, I don't know. Uh, because of COVID and everything, you never know what's gonna happen. But, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, so that might be something that you might consider selling if you're on the fence about it. Now, on the other hand, if you have a you know 1998 Donner's Crusade Red uh, of your favorite player, maybe you want to hang on to that one uh so you know you don't want to sell something and regret it later but if you have one of one of a plate a printing plate of somebody that you don't care about yeah get rid of it if you're not gonna if you don't care about it too much so uh armed with that knowledge moving forward when you have everything set aside that you could sell um or trade if you want uh do it start listing everything list the bulk on facebook marketplace or craigslist or even ebay Um, and get some of the biggest cards that you have and sell them as singles on eBay or the forums or uh, Facebook groups or Twitter or Instagram. There's a boatload of places that you can sell your cards. Um, I like to think of selling the bulk like mid or low end uh, in like one shot or two shots. Uh, But a lot of this also really comes down to uh, how much you want to uh, invest in terms of time into all these activities. So when you do this, you might find that you wanna squeeze every single penny out of this. This is your hobby and you don't mind spending the time doing it. If that's the case, go wild. I set a whole bunch of buy it now uh, listings on eBay for a buck each or whatever. Uh, If you wanna do that for cards or five bucks each or $10 each. When I sold my Conseco collection years ago, uh, I made a decision to List everything. If I remember correctly, that was either $20 or more on eBay as singles. Um, so it was a big mix. I would do a number of them in lots. I would do, uh, you know, much larger lots. Some of them were smaller lots, but the singles were always going to be like $20 or more. In fact, I think just as a kind of a fun note, um, if I remember correctly, I think at one point, nearly like a quarter, a third of all Canseco cards that were valued at $20 or more on eBay were mine <laughs> and that, uh, you know, you still see a lot of these cards that used to be mine of Kinseiko that are on eBay right now, but in the hands of other collectors and dealers that are selling them. So it's really, really kind of fun to, to see uh, to see where these cards go. But anyway, so that's basically one side of the coin. We've talked about how to sell your cards that you don't want, how to t- determine what cards you want to keep and so on and so forth. The next thing is how do you know what to collect? Um, now my story, my my advice would probably change now compared to what I would say 10, 15 years ago. Uh, my advice back then was go to the store, spend 20 bucks on various different packs and uh, open them up and see what you like. You know, I don't know if I would really say that anymore because we have so, we haven't just like this, enormous glut of cards out there that are being uh, that are being produced like it seems like every week now <laughs> you know like I think there was like if I remember correctly don't quote me on this but I think there were over 100 new releases in 2021 alone when when all said and done which to me is insane because I come from the time period of Tops, Fleer, Score, Donner's Upper Deck you know and then later on uh, you know, Bowman, Leaf, Stadium Club, Ultra, and then it just kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> or uphill, depending on how you think of it. So, uh, my advice now would be for you to start joining forums like blowoutforums.com, net54baseball.com if you want vintage, um, and uh, the Facebook groups, uh, Keep It Real, 90s to 2004, uh, Keeping It The realist. Anything Collectible Goes, Uh, getting involved in uh, baseball cards on Twitter and Instagram. And what this is going to do is this is going to allow you to join part of a much larger conversation with other hobbyists that love these cards uh, as much as you do. So that way you can kind of see what other people are collecting, what other people are showing off. And it's not necessarily just a way of keeping your ear to the ground to see what's hot. It's also to be able to see what's out there and what really catches your eye. And so it's kind of hard to describe what that looks like, okay, because it's just a feeling that you get when you see something. I'll give you an example. Uh, This last year, I think, uh, Topps released a uh, throwback to 91 Stadium Club, a refractor uh, version of it. And uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Brian, just actually showed me a picture of his Ripken that he posted. Uh, post a little video for me private message of it rocking back and forth under the light. And I go, my goodness gracious, that was a gorgeous card. So uh, that effect might happen to you if you start looking online because everybody shows the cards that they have for sale these days and and that they're keeping for their personal collection. So you're you're obviously not always just looking for um, these cards that are for sale, but just cards that are in, in other people's personal collections so that way you can get a better feel uh for uh what's out there so you know you might want to go after a lot of different types of cards but the way i would i would characterize the different categories are this you have pre-war uh which is going to be you know the really 40s and prior so you know from the 19th century to you know really kind of 1952 tops i think a lot of that stuff is typically going to be considered quote unquote pre-war uh some cards uh they're they're just like absolute art i love them i am a massive fan of 19th century baseball i love uh, t206 cards Cracker Jack cards those are from 1909 to 1915 basically um i'm just a massive fan of pre-war baseball in fact uh, aside from Kinseiko cards my really kind of oldest or most recent keepers are from 1934, you know, that's 1934, Gaudi, Lou Gehrig. Uh, So I'm a huge believer in vintage. I love pre-war stuff. uh, And especially like for uh, investment purposes, which don't take this as investment advice. This is just the path that I follow, is super key pre-war vintage. We're talking about the big guys, Ruth, Gehrig, Cobb, Shields Joe Jackson, um, Wagner, Christy Matthewson, Cy Young, Walter Johnson, those main guys there. Um, those are the guys that I am the biggest believer in when it comes to investment, at, uh, but also in lower grade, so by PSA or SGC, but with as high of eye appeal as possible. Uh, and let me kind of expand on that a little bit. Um, not all grades are created equal. You could have a PSA 1, uh, you know, E90-2 Honest Wagner, for instance. I've seen some that are really beat up, that just have wrinkles all the way throughout them, uh, horrible damage, around corners, that sort of thing. Or you could have a PSA1 E90-2 Wagner that's got very, very little damage to the front, but a little bit of a tear in the paper on the back. That is what I go after. I love that stuff. And people are starting to catch on also to this as well, because the, a lot of people are starting to, uh, Uh, make a lot of these low-grade, high-eye appeal cards, you know, kind of command more of a premium nowadays. But there's still some good deals to be found if you just keep your eyes peeled. So uh, that's what I would consider to be, like, the first category is, like, this pre-war vintage. Uh, And then you have post-war vintage. And really, you could almost almost split pre-war vintage into two things, 19th century and then 20th century. But post-war vintage. uh, Post-war is probably, you probably could uh uh start that with like let's say you know 48 bowman for example or really 48 49 leaf um so because i know that the war was over 1945 if i remember correctly so but anyway somewhere around there so from the mid late 40s all the way up to 1979 maybe and everybody's definition of vintage is different nowadays like some people might consider 1993 as vintage nowadays. I'm not sure. So i <laughs> kind of dating myself by saying that uh, 1979 and prior might be considered vintage for me. Um, so then you have, and there's there's some great cards there. I'm not too terribly interested myself in a lot of cards in that time period. But I mean, I love 52 Mantle. I love, you've got so many, so many amazing players and cards there. But uh, for me personally, I'm more into pre-war stuff myself, but Going, going forward, you have this time period of 80 to, you know let's say 86, 85, 86-ish, where cards are really kind of starting to be more standardized. They've got competition in Fleer and Donner's because they entered the market in 1981. Um, then they're starting to do these different you know grocery store type cards, and things are really ramping up for the hobby at this point. It hits a fever pitch probably around 87, 88, 89, where millions and millions and millions and millions of cards are being printed. In fact, I've heard even up to 1991, it's very possible that Topps was producing up to five million of every single card out there. So you never know uh, what the actual production numbers are, but there's a reason why typically the 87 to 92-ish era is called the junk wax era. I say this affectionately because I love that era. I think it's amazing, but there's just not a whole lot with uh, great value unless you start getting into graded things. So if you have like PSA 10, uh, A6 tops, whatever, like there could be some commons that go for like big money, but there's a reason for that because no, nobody really grades commons. And when you do, it's very, very, very hard to grade uh, to grade something a 10, especially like an A6 tops card. Um, in fact, it's kind of fun, there's a, uh, a forum out there, it's Collector's Universe, that somebody has been going on forever that's been ripping wax and rack packs and cello packs and vending boxes for a long time, like he's opening up an unreal amount of cards from the 80s in an attempt to pull as many PSA 10s as possible. And it's amazing, like he could, he could open an entire box or get like close to 600 cards out of a box and maybe one or two candidates, their PSA 10s, and one might be a checklist, another one might be a manager or something, yeah. So that goes to show you how difficult it is. Uh, so going forward after this though, from 93 on, you start having some really interesting cards. This is where things get really interesting because you have all kinds of inserts, and parallels and there is an amazing amount of competition where these card companies are doing amazing things. So 93 Finest Refractors uh, are the first kind of lower lower print run type of uh, parallels. And before that 91, you have like the Donner Elite Series but those are like serial number to 10,000 or something, right? So, <laughs> But 93 Finest Refractors, they were, are something to behold. They're beautiful. Uh, you have all kinds of different insert sets and parallels and, uh, you know, all the card companies at this point are really starting to make several, several card types as well. Um, this goes all the way on through probably, oh, I want to say, let's say 2000 or so. That's when they start getting in around that time period. They start getting into gaming's cards and, and really kind of starting to ramp up putting autograph cards in, in packs or anything as well. So that's the next time period. So the so first of all, to back up the '90s, I would I would ca- characterize as like the the parallel insert category, okay? And that's like one of my favorite time periods in this uh, in in this hobby, which you know for sure because they're so amazing. But after that is really when they start getting into not just the inserts and parallels, but also the glut of game use cards and autograph cards, and that kind of runs up until. I would typically try to say about 2010 ish. And let me tell you why that's the cutoff in a second here. Um, but, you know, 2005, I think was like a big deal as well, because you have so, so, so many game cards and parallels. Uh, it's just, it was unreal. So, uh, and it took years later for people to start realizing, okay, these game cards aren't with the little white swatch, aren't like amazing and, you know, worth their weight in gold or whatever. Like people are used to them. Especially nowadays, there's not really too terribly many white swatch type cards that will make people, uh, you know, blink even nowadays. But anyway, so 2010, if I remember correctly, I think uh, Upper Deck and Tops were really the two uh, main guys out there. But Upper Deck lost their license back in 2009. And if I remember correctly, they said yeah, we're going to keep uh, offering cards out. Well, they were sued for that or something, if I remember correctly. And definitely guys like Google this because it's an interesting story. Um, And also I don't want to like mislead anybody in what I'm saying. I'm just going off of complete memory here. So um, anyway, uh, 2010 Exquisite, for instance, uh, happens. And these cards are beautiful. They're amazing. They've got amazing patch cards. And they started releasing these, but then, you know, court said, nope, you got to stop. So cards that are numbered out 75, we'd only have cards that were, uh, only have five of the copies getting out into the wild and, you know, that was it. So uh, pretty interesting story there. And those cards are highly coveted, but from 2010 on, guess what? That kind of cleared the playing field and Tops has really been the only licensed uh, player in the game uh, since then for the most part. And I think even... Aside from Upper Deck, I, if I remember correctly, I think like Donruss, Leaf, Fleer, all those guys, I think they tapped out probably mid-2000s. So, uh, you know, Topps didn't really have a whole lot of competition um, after, you know, in the late 2000s. Um, and, you know, when Upper Deck was gone, the only, one, the only competition that Topps really had is Panini and Leaf, really, for the most part. And they were just doing unlicensed cards. And, you know, they still they do make amazing cards for sure. Like some of my favorite cards in my collection are unlicensed. But this is really if if we were to characterize the era that we're in, it's the Topps era, you know, because that's where that's really where the only place you can go for licensed cards. So as you can see, you have like a handful of categories of distinctly different cards that have been throughout the years. And, And there's like I could probably speak at length for an hour or more on each of these categories, but that kind of gives you a broad brush overview of everything that's out there. So the next question is, is to really kind of think about each of each one of these uh, categories and really determine where you want to start collecting. And sometimes you're going to have spillover. You're going to love cards from each category. Like for me personally, I have say cards I love from the nineties as well as the two thousands and current. Uh, and, uh, so that's the three categories there, but I also love pre-war vintage. So it's four categories. So, you know, and, you know, shoot, I love junk wax. I just don't really have a whole lot of it right now, but I will have to remedy that soon. So that's like another category there. So, uh, but that's going to help you out tremendously if you get online and start seeing what other people are posting and that will give you a good idea of what's out there and what you love and what you are me, you know, okay about, but uh, but really kind of, you know, that'll help you find out exactly what you're super white hot about. Now, when you have that, this next question is, the next question is, how, how do I know what to pay for these cards? This is a very big question I get all the time because you can go on eBay right now, you search 1990 Donners Bojacks and you'll have some that will be 50 cents. You'll have some that will be $100, but virtually all of them, should be valued about the same price so uh, that's a very important thing for you to realize is to not search ebay for prices but to search ebay sold prices somebody can put something for sale for anything they want i could literally put up an 88 tops Kinseco up there for sale for uh, right now for five thousand dollars it doesn't mean it's worth five thousand dollars the important part is what somebody's willing to pay for it Now, if you have an eBay store under the selling research tab, uh, so you go selling and then research on eBay, you can open up uh, something from Terapeak, if I remember correctly, and that gives you the prices of what things have actually sold for. There's also a website. I don't know if it works anymore. uh, It's 130pt.com. That should give you a good idea for prices as well. So... If you're looking to get, for instance, Mark McGuire cards from uh, Allen and Ginter over the past few years, you could actually search to see what his cards have been selling for. If you find out that a patch Allen and Ginter card of McGuire has, uh, you know, out of you know, say, twenty-five, has been selling for forty dollars, you now know that you would be safe spending about forty dollars, and hopefully, you'd be able to uh, get it for a little less than that. Um, you know, so that's going to help you tremendously. You do not want to base what you buy them for based up solely upon what's for sale currently, because there might only be a couple for sale right now for $125. And, uh, well, let am say there's a reason why they're for sale and not already sold. Um, and you know, that said every now and then, uh, that won't always ring true. So they try and give you some guidelines here to, to go by, but, uh, every now and then you'll have some cards that uh might have a sales history of forty dollars and maybe the next ones are worth a hundred or more because the quantity has dried up and everybody else uh, has the rest of them locked up in their personal collection so you you just really kind of have to uh you know start you know striking up conversations with people other collectors doing research um and so it's there's just a lot of stuff to do but it's all fun it's enjoyable if you really love this hobby So um, anyways, those are a few of my thoughts. I could probably go on for a lot longer, but I wanted to give, again, like a kind of a 10,000 foot overview of everything that comes to my mind right now. Um, Hope this is very helpful to you, Dan, as well as anybody else out there that uh, has been having these questions as well. Uh, Feel free to always ask other questions uh, for anybody out there that's listening. My email is tanmanbaseballfan at gmail.com. And oh, by the way, um, one other thing, uh, number one, of course, I'll plug my book Confessions of a Baseball Card Addict, available on Amazon. It's on sale right now. And uh, number two, I've been doing a lot of customs for people, custom baseball cards uh, with relic pieces or autographs are cut in uh, for people for uh, for Christmas. So if you want something done, message me as well tanmanbaseballfan at gmail.com but make sure you get your orders in soon if they're for christmas i do these all year round but if you want to do something for christmas you know hit me up uh, sooner than later so thank you all for listening i hope you all have a great rest of your day